0: Hey everyone, I'm Ray Belli, and this is Words for Granted, a podcast that looks at how words change over time. If you value the podcast as a free and independent educational resource, you can support the show by making a monthly donation at patreon.com slash wordsforgranted. You can also make a one-time donation at paypal.me slash wordsforgranted. Thanks to Taylor, Joshua, Lois, and Chris for their recent contributions. I just posted a bonus episode on Patreon that explores the etymologies of specific varieties of pasta. Penne, ziti, spaghetti, linguine, and more. So, if you'd like to listen to that, plus the full back catalog of bonus episodes, patreon.com wordsforgranted is your ticket. Before we jump into today's new series on the lost letters of the English alphabet, which I'm so excited about, I wanted to discuss some listener emails I received in response to the open-ended question posed at the end of the last episode. Last time, we looked at the etymology of pasta, and the semantically similar words macaroni and noodle came up in the discussion. Because the meanings of these words have such a degree of overlap... I had a sense that we probably don't all use them in exactly the same way, and based on the listener emails I received over the last few weeks, I was right. So, I said that in colloquial usage, macaroni and pasta are synonyms, excluding stuffed pastas like manicotti or tortellini. Those wouldn't count as macaroni. It turns out that many of you don't agree with me, and apparently neither does the dictionary. But yet, some of you do agree with me, so I'm not entirely alone here. Based on the emails I received, it seems like most people's senses of the words pasta, macaroni, and noodle are in accordance with their standard English dictionary definitions, which are as follows. Pasta. A dish originally from Italy, consisting of dough made from durum wheat and water, extruded or stamped into various shapes, and typically cooked in boiling water macaroni, a variety of pasta formed in narrow tubes, and noodle, a very thin, long strip of pasta or a similar flour paste eaten with a sauce or in a soup. Yet, these definitions don't hold true for everyone. Listener Themby says that she's heard many Italian-Americans from the Northeast U.S. refer to all non-stuffed pastas as macaroni, while for her, macaroni refers to narrow-tube pasta only. I myself fall into that category of Italian-American from the Northeast U.S., so I can attest to that. By the way, my sense of macaroni as a synonym for pasta is apparently so ingrained that a few nights ago... I accidentally referred to the ravioli I was eating for dinner as macaroni. This is not something that I would ordinarily identify as macaroni, but I saw pasta in sauce, and the phrase bowl of macaroni, in reference to the ravioli, just naturally came out, and had I not just released this episode on the etymology of pasta, I probably wouldn't have thought twice about it because it just doesn't seem that unusual to me. I mention this to listener Tommy, and he says that calling ravioli macaroni is unforgivable. Perhaps you agree. Listener Emerald from Lancashire, England says that their parents use the word spaghetti to refer to all types of pasta, while their partner, who is Welsh, uses the word pasta to refer to all types of noodles, even the non-Italian kind. Listener Bill from Pittsburgh also attests to this usage of spaghetti as an umbrella term for any kind of pasta. He also notes that his paternal grandparents, who were Italian-American immigrants who didn't speak English until grade school, called all pasta macaroni. Perhaps this was true of my maternal great-grandparents, who were also Italian immigrants. If they called all pasta macaroni, then they would have passed that down to my maternal grandparents, and they would have passed that on to my mom, and she passed it on to me. Listener Rebecca, a Lebanese immigrant to Ottawa, says that her family uses the word macaroni to refer specifically to spaghetti. Now, that was a usage I'd never heard of. I suspected that it was unique to Rebecca's familect, or the words, expressions, and phrases given meaning within a particular family, but when I pressed her further on this, she said that it was actually common among English-speaking Lebanese communities, both in Lebanon itself and in North America. Lastly, some listeners who abide by the standard English senses of pasta, macaroni, and noodle noted that they would never refer to pasta as noodles. Noodles, they say, is a word reserved for non-Italian types of pasta-like products. On the other hand, Other listeners in this standard usage camp say that they do indeed refer to individual pieces of long pasta as noodles. I think this latter opinion is more quote-unquote correct according to the standard English definitions, but I'm not here to tell you what's right or wrong, just to share what your fellow listeners are saying. Remember, I'm the guy who called ravioli macaroni, so I really don't know what ends up here. Apparently, listener Chris is so heavily in the Pasta is Noodles camp that he refers to spaghetti as spaghetti noodles, linguine as linguine noodles, etc. He recounted an episode where he was cooking with an Australian friend who became annoyed that he kept referring to spaghetti as noodles. He confusedly asked, Well, what should I call them then? Pasta, his friend replied, to which he said, Exactly. Exactly. Pasta noodles. His friend insisted that noodles described Asian noodles, while Italian noodles had to be called pasta. The bottom line here is that regardless of what the right senses of these words are, according to the dictionary, there are minority usages of them stemming from different regions, historical lineages, familects, and more. In spite of truly not caring about who's right and wrong here, I do want to share one quick observation in defense of my macaroni-is-a-synonym-for-pasta usage that goes beyond my multi-generational Northeastern U.S.-Italian-American heritage. I was at the supermarket and passing through the pasta aisle, and having just done the pasta episode, I had pasta names on my mind, so I was just perusing the boxes, reading them, and lo and behold, what do I see in fine print at the bottom of the boxes? enriched macaroni product. So, this was not only the boxes of macaroni that said enriched macaroni product, but all the pasta had this on the box. Ziti, ricatoni, shells, rotini, orzo, spaghetti, you name it. All of them were called enriched macaroni products. And this was not just one brand, but multiple brands. I never noticed this before, and again, if I had, it probably would not have struck me as odd, since I'm a pasta is mostly macaroni guy, but if you are a no way in hell could anything but tube-shaped pasta be called macaroni kind of person, check out the pasta boxes in your pantry and see if they're called an enriched macaroni product. Since this very precise phrase is used by multiple brands, I assume this has something to do with the FDA, and standardized regulatory language. If any of you have any insights here, you know how to find me wordsforgranted at gmail.com, and let me know. Maybe this conversation about pasta will continue. Okay, and now for something completely different. On to part one of the lost letters of the English alphabet. For many of us, the English alphabet seems inextricably tied to the English language. When we go to school as children, one of the first things that we learn, if not the first thing we learn, Is the alphabet. A says a, B says b, C says k. The ABCs of a particular subject refer to the most fundamental knowledge or skills relevant to that subject. At a subconscious level, I think that most of us feel like the actual ABCs, those in the alphabet, are also fundamental to our language. You can't have the English language without the alphabet as we know it. Except That's not exactly true. First of all, language and writing are not necessarily two sides of the same coin. Unlike language, which is a natural byproduct of human evolution and found unanimously across our species, writing is an invention. It's a technology or system used to symbolically represent the sounds and words within a language. It's an extension of language, but not the language itself. Homo sapiens have been speaking languages for anywhere between 50,000 and 200,000 years, while writing was only invented about 5,500 years ago. And before modern initiatives of mass education, writing and reading didn't really flourish as democratically accessible skills. While we've never encountered a people or society without language, plenty of societies, sophisticated societies at that, have existed without writing. Coincidentally, the wonderful podcast Lingthusiasm, hosted by Lauren Gaughan and Gretchen McCulloch, recently did an episode on this topic of writing as a technology, so after you listen to this episode, if you want to learn more on this topic, I encourage you to check it out. You can find a link in the show notes. The tagline of Words for Granted is a podcast that looks at how words change over time. But perhaps a more accurate tagline is how Language changes over time. While it's true that we usually focus on the changes experienced by individual words in this show, we often use these word-specific changes as a way of studying changes experienced by language at large. One of the most common kinds of changes that occurs at the language level is sound change. Since the alphabet represents a language's sounds, and these sounds are by their very nature prone to change over time, it follows that an alphabet is prone to change over time, too. Now, this may cause a knee-jerk reaction in some of you. The alphabet just seems so authoritative and fixed, doesn't it? It does, but the whole point of this introduction is to unbuckle our attachment to the alphabet as it is. In reality, the English alphabet as it is is not the way it always has been, and for that matter, is not the way it needs to stay in the future. Spoiler alert the English alphabet was not the first alphabet used to write the English language. So much for the ABCs being fundamental to English. While the future of the English alphabet is an interesting speculative conversation we could have, in today's discussion, I'd like to focus on our alphabets' past. If we trace the English alphabet back to its oldest roots, it's changed a lot. The modern English alphabet is a derivative of the Latin alphabet, which is most likely a derivative of the Etruscan alphabet, which is a derivative of the Greek alphabet, which is a derivative of the Phoenician alphabet, which is ultimately a derivative of Egyptian hieroglyphs, which are not an alphabet. An alphabet, by definition, is a set of symbols that correspond to a language's individual sounds. Through trade and cultural contact, the first true alphabet, the Phoenician alphabet, crossed continents, languages, and language families. After several centuries, it made its way from its homeland in the Levant to Greece, to Italy, and finally to the British Isles. Along the way, letters were deleted added, and reassigned to new sounds in order to reflect the characteristics of the new languages for which it was being adopted. Some of the most drastic changes in the alphabet took place early on. The Phoenicians, who invented the alphabet, spoke a Semitic language, whereas the Greeks, who were the next in line to borrow and modify this original alphabet on its eventual transmission to English speakers, they spoke an Indo-European language, In Semitic languages, vowels don't play as crucial a role as they do in Indo-European languages, so in the original Phoenician alphabet, there were no vowels. Other Semitic languages whose speakers borrowed the Phoenician alphabet inherited this convention of vowel-less writing, the best known today of which are Hebrew and Arabic. These languages' alphabets don't have dedicated letters to represent vowels, but rather, they use diacritic marks that are written above or under consonants to indicate what vowels should be pronounced in the word. However, these diacritic marks are optional, and were innovated after the alphabets themselves were developed. Anyway, this vowel-less system of writing doesn't really work well in Indo-European languages, So when the Greeks got a hold of this Phoenician alphabet, they took the Phoenician letters that didn't correspond to Greek sounds and reassigned them to Greek vowels. For example, the Phoenician letter aleph, whose symbol is the ancestor to the Greek alpha and ultimately the letter A, represented a glottal stop sound found in the Phoenician language that was not prevalent in Greek. When the Etruscans, neighbors of the Romans on the Italian peninsula, borrowed the Greek alphabet, they ditched the Greek letters Upsilon and Zeta because they didn't correspond to sounds in the Etruscan language. They didn't need them. When the Latin-speaking Romans borrowed the alphabet from the Etruscans, they inherited an alphabet without Upsilon and Zeta. However, after the Romans conquered Greece in 31 BCE, they reborrowed the Greek letters upsilon and zeta into their alphabet in order to write Greek loanwords. Upsilon and zeta would pass into English as Y and Z, respectively, and this late reborrowing in the history of the alphabet explains why y and z are placed at the end. Not only were letters deleted, added, and reassigned to new phonetic values as the alphabet was passed from language to language the actual shapes of the alphabet's letters changed, too. If you compare the Phoenician Aleph, the Greek Alpha, and the Latin A, you can see that these symbols represent evolutions along a continuum, but they are nonetheless all distinct. It's not like they're just the same letter rendered in a different font. It's hard to say exactly why a particular letter in a particular alphabet evolves a particular shape, But when taking a bird's eye view of a language's entire alphabet, subjective cultural aesthetic is definitely a factor that comes into play. So is the medium used for writing at the time of an alphabet's standardization. Chisels, brushes, and styli, for example, all have unique characteristics that better lend themselves to certain shapes over others. We'll see some specific examples of this in a few minutes. When it comes to the original Phoenician alphabet, though, we actually do know the reason behind the shapes of the letters. Let's look at the Phoenician letter TET as an example. The letter TET is shaped like a circle with an X inside of it. It kind of looks like a wheel. As it turns out, the Phoenician word for wheel was TET. So the shapes of letters in the original Phoenician alphabet were actually based on objects in the world. The names of these letters were identical to the names of the objects they were based on, and the sounds associated with these letters were derived from the first sound in the names of the object on which they were based. So, the sound associated with the letter tet was t. As the Phoenician alphabet was borrowed by speakers of other languages, its letters lost their symbolic correspondence to things in the world, and as a result the shapes of letters were allowed to become more abstract. They were able to become more arbitrary and stylized symbols. All of this may seem like a far cry away from the English alphabet, and it is, but this overview is meant to provide some context to help you understand how alphabets and writing systems change over time in general. It's also meant to serve as a reminder that before the Greeks borrowed the Phoenician alphabet, they were getting along just fine speaking Greek. Before the Romans borrowed the Etruscan alphabet, they were getting along just fine speaking Latin. And of course, before the Anglo-Saxons borrowed the Latin alphabet, they were getting along just fine speaking Old English. So, a language is not its alphabet. With this very brief and oversimplified overview under our belts, we can now turn our attention to the lost letters of the English alphabet. They are Thorn Win, Eth, Ethel, Ash, Insular G, Yog, Eng, and Long S, with honorable mentions of that, Tyronean et, and ampersand. These honorable mentions are not letters in the true sense, but letter like symbols that frequently appeared in English texts at various points in history. Obviously, we are at a real disadvantage here because this is an audio podcast and I can't print these letters on a page for you or show you a picture, so in future episodes, I'll be including pictures on the website, links in the show notes, etc., but for now, in this overview, I don't feel like it's important to get in the weeds describing what these letters look like. Don't worry, we'll cover them one by one in detail next time. In order for letters to be lost, first They need to come into existence. Two of the English alphabet's lost letters, thorn and wynn, actually predate the Latin script used to write English today. As I alluded to earlier, the Latin script was not the original writing system used to write English. Before the introduction of the Latin script to the Anglo-Saxons by Irish missionaries, Old English was written in a runic alphabet. A runic alphabet consists of runes, which, like the Latin letters, are symbols that correspond to individual sounds. The runic alphabet was a writing system used not only by Anglo-Saxons to write Old English, but by all ancient Germanic peoples to write their respective languages. Linguists believe that the earliest runic alphabet dates to the late common Germanic period, roughly between the 1st and 2nd centuries BCE, which is before the Proto-Germanic language, or the first Germanic language, broke off into its daughter branches, North Germanic, West Germanic, and East Germanic. For the record, English is a West Germanic language. If you've never seen runes before, they are extremely angular symbols made of mostly straight lines, I've posted a link to some charts and pictures in the show notes, and also posted some photos on the website. The runes had to have this angular, straight-lined aesthetic because runes were initially carved in wood, stone, or metal, and it's hard to make loops and other circular shapes with a chisel-like implement. Interestingly, Early runic symbols lack horizontal lines because horizontal lines are difficult to read against the natural grain of wood. So, did the ancient Germanic tribes come up with the runic alphabet by themselves? No. There's a general consensus among historical linguists that the runic alphabet is an adaptation of an old italic alphabet. This means that it's ultimately derived from the Phoenician alphabet as well. The term italic here simply refers to an alphabet in use on the Italian peninsula, not to a particular language family. Originally, these old italic alphabets, from which our familiar friend the Latin alphabet is ultimately derived, were also very straight-lined and angular, and that's because they too were primarily carved in wood, stone, and metal. As ink and papyrus became more widespread throughout the Roman Empire, the Latin script evolved more rounded strokes. As we can see, an evolution in the medium used for Latin writing influenced an evolution in the shape of the Latin letters. Like the Greek speakers who adjusted the sounds associated with the Phoenician letters in order to accommodate their native tongue, the Germanic speakers who inherited this old italic alphabet did the same with the runic alphabet. With the passing of time and the emergence of distinct Germanic languages in different parts of Europe, different versions of runic alphabets developed. The one that most directly concerns us is called Futhork. That was the runic alphabet used by the Anglo-Saxons. Futhork is a funny-sounding name, and it's derived from the sounds represented by the first six runes in the Futhork alphabet. F-U-F-O-R-K. Futhork. This is not dissimilar to when we say ABCs to mean our alphabet, or even to the etymology of alphabet itself. Alphabet derives from the name of the first two letters in the Greek alphabet, alpha and beta, whence we get the first two letters of the English alphabet, A and B. Even though futhork was the exclusive writing system used by Anglo-Saxons for five centuries, a meager 200 or so inscriptions survive, most of which are nothing more than a single phrase or sentence. After the Latin alphabet was introduced to Britain and became the main writing system of the Christianized Anglo-Saxons, Futhork still survived, but with a very diminished relevance. In the wake of the Norman-French invasion of England in 1066, the Germanic runes soon vanished into a distant memory. We'll be discussing Futhork and runes more in the next episode in this series. Now, About that Latin alphabet that replaced Futhork, how did that come into the picture, and when? Between the late 6th and 8th centuries CE, waves of missionaries from continental Europe and Ireland converted the pagan Anglo-Saxons into God-fearing Christians. Irish missionaries, working mostly during the 7th century, were the ones responsible for introducing the Latin alphabet to Anglo-Saxon monasteries. During this time period, monasteries were the main epicenters of education in Europe, and thus they were also the main epicenters of writing. Originally, the Latin alphabet was used by Christian Anglo-Saxons to write in Latin, which makes sense. The earliest English words to appear in the Latin script were personal names of people like kings and landowners, which also makes sense. But Rendering those English names in the Latin script was all it took for those native English-speaking scribes working in Latin to soon realize we could also use this Latin alphabet for our native language, too. Once this realization occurred, the written corpus of Old English grew exponentially. Full-length Old English literary works such as Cadman's Hymn, The Seafarer, Dream of the Rood, The Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, and of course Beowulf were written down, and they were written down in the Latin alphabet. A reasonable question to ask is, why did these works of literature get written down in the Latin alphabet when these native Old English speakers already had the Futhork Runic alphabet? The answer is pretty straightforward. There was simply no precedent for writing down literature in Germanic cultures. For centuries, Germanic peoples had an oral tradition of poetry and storytelling. The runic alphabet was used mostly to mark ownership on things like weapons and gravestones, or for religious divination purposes. The European Christian tradition, on the other hand, was very bookish, and it probably seemed like if you were going to write something down that was long, the Latin script was the one you were supposed to use. Like I said, monasteries were the epicenters of education, so when educated Anglo-Saxons learned to write, they learned the Latin alphabet, in spite of being native English speakers. Furthermore, after the Anglo-Saxons had been Christianized, the Germanic runes, particularly due to their significance in pagan divination rituals, likely were viewed as strange and foreign, which, of course, is ironic, given that runic alphabets are native to Germanic peoples. Okay, That was a lot of information, but hopefully I've done a decent job distilling it for you and not putting you to sleep. At the end of the last episode, I mentioned that I would have an announcement to make this time. I didn't forget about that, it's just that the announcement isn't ready yet. So hopefully, by the release of the next episode, it will be, so stay tuned. If you love today's show, I encourage you to leave a rating and review wherever you listen to the podcast. And again, my email is wordsforgranted at gmail.com. If you'd like to support my research and the regular output of this show, you can become a monthly contributor at patreon.com slash wordsforgranted, or make a one-time donation at paypal.me slash wordsforgranted. Trust me, I'm repeating it because it goes a long way. All right. Have a great day, and I'll catch you next time here at Words for Granted.